Good morning, everyone. Tell you, don't get used to these. You know, these ones leave like the fuzz in your mouth. If you would open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 65, we're going to look at select passages from Isaiah 65, beginning of verse 17, and then we're going to hop over at the end to Isaiah 66, the verses 10 to 14, the passage that Paul read. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but I was doing this the other day, and it really struck me just how awkward it was. Have you ever listened to Christian music, especially the contemporary stuff, and at the same time read the news? If you do that, you'll, you'll notice there's an unsettling dissonance, a lack of harmony, a deep-seated tension. And this struck me the other day as I was listening to Anthony Evans' uh, really excellent album, Altered. I was listening to Evans and I was reading the news. So let me play out really quick kind of a little bit what happened. Evans, he is the light of the world. He's living inside a love that will never die. My hope is alive. The news. Two teens killed in quadruple shooting in South Philly, which just so happened to be mere blocks from our old house. Hope seems to die over and over again each time a teen is shot down and killed. Evans again. You won't hold back when it comes to your children. You fiercely defend us until we stand delivered. You're fighting for us, always fighting for us. You won't back down. Christian Post this week. One killed, four students kidnapped as gunmen invade school church in Nigeria. Fulani radicals attack the school, kidnap children, and burn down a church building. It's enough. I think you get the picture. Take pretty much any Christian worship song, put it next to the news headlines, and you have this unsettling distance, this broken harmony, this deep-seated tension. This is life in the in-between. See, both are true. Jesus is really the light of the world. And because of his light, hope truly is alive. But teenagers are shot down in the streets of Philadelphia far too often. God is really fighting for us. I believe that is true. But believing children are killed and kidnapped with heartbreaking frequency. It's been over six years and many of us have forgotten, but 112 of those Chibok girls still remain in captivity, unaccounted for. Six years. UNICEF estimates that 1,000 children have been kidnapped by Boko Haram in Nigeria since 2013 alone. Author Fleming Rutledge describes this time in between as one of Advent. Listen to what she writes. Advent is where we live, work, play, laugh, struggle, and die. Advent is the time between, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming, between darkness and dawn, between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ. It is not the time of fulfillment. It is the time of waiting. It is not the time of seeing face to face. It is the time of seeing through a glass darkly. It is not the time of triumphant victory. It is the time of bearing the cross. Grace, this is where we are. This time in between, a time of waiting. 
A time of seeing through a glass darkly. A time of bearing the cross. This is the time where teenagers are shot dead in our city. This is a time where precious children just trying to learn are kidnapped. And their lives are forever ruined. This is a time when the reality of life, as we saw last week, continues to seemingly contradict the great promises of our God. That's why last week I called us to run to God in prayer, to cry out to Him, Lord God, remember Your covenant. Lord, rend the heavens. Come down and save Your people. Lord, restore us our hope, our joy, our salvation. Lord, we desperately need You. Our God, act, redeem, save us. And herein lies the tension. God has promised to save. He already has saved. And He will save. But we have to wait. We have to wait. So the question really of the Christian life is how do we wait? How do we wait in this time in between? How do we wait when God gives life, but yet teenagers are shot down? How do we wait as God is fighting for His people, but children are kidnapped? How do we, as followers of Christ, wait in the midst of this tension? How do we shine, Paul says, as lights in a crooked and wicked world? Isaiah centers us. And I believe Isaiah takes us, he gives us a future vision which fortifies us to live in the present. He thrusts us to the future and says, here you go, now go back and live now, today. So the point of the sermon, a clear vision of the future, enables us to live well in the present. A clear vision of the future enables us to live well in the present. Isaiah offers us this eschatological vision of future hope in chapters 65, verses 17 to 25, and then in 66, 10 to 14, really the entire 40 through 66. It's a foretaste of the Lord restoring His people, making all things new to His praise and glory. So yes, we live in the time in between. We live in this period of tense tension. But the picture Isaiah tells us, look forward to see a deep and beautiful and abiding eschatological vision of hope. This vision of the future fortifies us. It places us then back in our current reality. We are not left unscathed. We are not left without hope. We are left with the hope of a future where God will make all things new. So again, the main point, God's promised restoration will bring a future of eternal joy, peace, and comfort. But that future comfort also provides us with joy, peace, and comfort for today. As we conclude our time in Isaiah, and I'm always a little sad at the end of a book, I want us to see that our comfort today is intertwined with our comfort of tomorrow. Because we have hope for the future, we have hope for today. Our comfort is presence because our comfort is assured forever. 
We have comfort today because God promises restoration in the future. This is the sure promise of our covenant-keeping God. So as we peer into the future, as we journey with Isaiah one last time, I want us to see three things this morning. The first is I want us to see that God's promised restoration brings joy, not just in the future, but now. God's promised restoration brings joy. Secondly, God's promised restoration brings peace. Peace now and peace in the future. The third thing, God's promised restoration brings comfort. This is an overriding theme of our, this series of Isaiah 40 through 66, that the eternal comfort God offers is our presence comfort today. Lord, help us to see clearly your future vision of eternal hope. Give us eyes to see. Let's begin. The first point, God's promised restoration brings joy. Look at verse 17 to the first part of verse 19. God's word says this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Last week, Isaiah called upon the Lord to act. Lord, remember your covenant. Lord, rend the heavens and come down. Lord, restore your people. Now Isaiah shows us the Lord answering those prayers. As we saw last week, they are answered in Christ, but they are also answered completely and fully and perfectly, not just in the cross, but when Christ returns. That tension between the cross and the second coming is where we're at. Christ says it is finished, but it doesn't feel finished. So we wait knowing that he will finish it completely and perfectly when he comes again. This is, as we've already said, the reality of the Christian life, the reality of life in between. But we do truly see the promises of God being fulfilled here. Look, he remembers his covenant. He rends the heaven. He has come down. He has restored his people. It has begun. And what is great about Isaiah, this passage, verses 17, it takes us back to the very beginning. God creates, he creates, he creates. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, what did God do? Creates. God created and God is going to create again. When God remembers his covenant, the end result will be that one day he recreates all things. He makes all things new. He created the heavens and the earth once. He can surely recreate the heavens and the earth again, making all things new. And this is remarkable. The former things shall be not be remembered or come into mind. When God remembers his covenant, the end result is that one day we will forget all the former things. They will no longer be remembered. They will no longer come to mind. Now, to be honest with you, I scratched my head a little bit and wondered, is it really saying what it's saying? Does it really mean that all the hardship, all the brokenness, all the sorrow, all the sickness, all the sadness, will, we will forget that? We will no longer remember that? 
part of me wants to say, yes, please. The other part of me is like, really? I don't know. It seems to be saying that, does it not? The former things, at the very least, will no longer matter. Christ will make all things new. As one commentator says, all the ways in which sin has stamped this world with its own deformed image will be wiped away, not only from reality, but even from memory. What a glorious day that will be. Christ making all things new will not so much answer all of our questions as it will make those questions superfluous. We'll wonder why we asked them in the first place. I think C.S. Lewis, when he's reflecting on just his wife died and he was reflecting upon his death of his wife, he says this, Heaven will solve our problems, but not, I think, by showing us subtle reconciliations between all our apparently contradictory notions and said the notions will be knocked from under our feet, Lewis says. We shall see that there never was any problem. So we have this idea that when we get to heaven, God will answer all of our questions. I think in reality, when we get to heaven, those questions will no longer be asked. Why? Because our God will be there. Are we going to ask God, why did you do this when the Lord of heaven and earth is standing before us in resplendent glory? He will be our God, and we will be his people, and we will stand face to face. Now, we may never see all the details or have all of our questions answered, but I don't believe we'll really need to. We will be face to face with our Savior. All else will pale in comparison. All questions will be cast out of our minds as we fall on our knees before him in worship. Instead of questions, songs will fill our lips. You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And those songs of deliverance will dry up our tears of sorrow. And we will move from mourning into joy. In fact, God's word in Isaiah commands us to be joyful. Nothing will be the same when God makes all things new. Nothing. There will be joy. No more sin, sorrow, sickness, sadness. Joy, joy, joy. Look at verse 18. It calls upon the people to immediately be glad and rejoice. This isn't just a future reality. This should be our present reality. Because of what we have to look forward to, we have hope and joy today. Verse 18, these recalls to joy are imperatives, commands. Be joyful, be glad, rejoice. God's actions in the past and the cross, God's actions in the future when he comes again are confirming his covenant promise to be our God for us to be his people. And that should bring us joy. Deep, abiding, abundant, overflowing, lasting joy. See, God will create Jerusalem, his people, to be a joy. And this is remarkable. Don't miss this. God himself will find joy in his people. Think about that for a moment. God's restoration doesn't just bring his people joy. It brings him joy. 
God will delight in us as he's made us all thing new. He will delight in us as new creations conformed and shaped and molded into his image. Brothers and sisters, God's restoration brings joy. Overflowing, abundant, eternal joy for tomorrow and for today. Secondly, God's promised restoration brings peace. Pick up in the second part of verse 19 down to verse 25. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. No more. No more. That's what the Lord declares. No more. No more tears. No more weeping. No more cries of distress. No more infant deaths. No more elderly deaths. No more housing discrimination. No more stealing. No more lack of food and resources. No more calamity. No more divisions. No more curse. No more sin. When the Lord declares no more, he's putting a permanent moratorium on injustice, death, sin, and unrighteousness. Cease and desist, the Lord our God declares no more weeping, crying, infants dying. All are signs of the curse. There is no peace in this world because humanity has rebelled against the Lord and received the curse. Cursed is the ground in all of our work. Cursed is childbearing. Cursed is life. Cursed are all relationships between one another. Cursed is work. Cursed is all of creation. Cursed. All of creation is cursed. 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 Nothing falls outside of the curse. All is broken. But God sent his son. God sent his son who saw the cursed world and became a curse for us. Jesus has and will continue to reverse that curse. And he does so by becoming a curse himself. Cursed, Paul says, is everyone who hangs upon a tree. He not only bears our sin, but bears the curse and bears the wrath of God. He stands in our place. He stands in the place of the accursed and becomes a curse himself. He dies the death that you and I, each and every one of us, deserve with full wrath and punishment. And Christ himself is cursed in our place. And hope went dark. 
that violent day. The whole earth quaked at love's display. Three days silent in the ground, this body born for heaven's crown. But God is not finished with his Christ. On the third day, in power and might and glory and quietness, Christ the Lord rose from the grave. And now we, as the redeemed of God, sing a new song. But on that bright and glorious day, when heaven opened up the grave, he is alive and risen indeed. Oh, praise him for that mercy tree. Death has died. Love has won. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Christ has overcome. He has risen from the dead. If you want to go back a little older, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the crown. Ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Death has died. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, death, where is your victory? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Love has won, church, and peace has come. God's final cry of no more will one day find its complete and perfect answer in Revelation 21, 3-5. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God promises to make all things new. This is our future hope. This is the promise of God as far as the curse is found, and it is found everywhere. He comes to make his blessings known. Brothers and sisters, God's restoration brings us peace for tomorrow and peace for today. Renewing, hope-filled, everlasting peace. And it also comes to bring comfort. The third point, if you'd flip over to chapter 66, the passage Paul read this morning, verses 10 through 14. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse, and you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knee as one whom, whom her mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. The Lord calls us 
his people to rejoice, to be glad, to overflow with joy. All those who currently mourn, which pretty much should be every one of us to a degree, the sadness, despair, mourning will one day turn to joy. A time is coming when those tears will be no more. The Lord is pouring out his comfort. And take note of the imagery Isaiah and the Lord uses. He pictures both Jerusalem and the Lord God as a mother, a comforting mother. He's not here because he's probably being, he's probably in trouble. Gabriel doesn't perceive me as a comforting mother, nor should he really. But Sarah is a comforting mother. And the Lord here, in a wonderfully beautiful passage, is compared to a comforting mother. And God's people first are compared to a beautiful, comforting mother. Look at verses 10 to 12. Jerusalem, God's people, they're pictured as a nursing mother for the nations. This is a picture of God's people spreading blessing, joy, and peace and comfort to the nations. This is a final fulfillment of Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 when God says to Abraham, I will make you a blessing to all the nations. It finds fulfillment in Christ and extends outward through the work of the church in this current time. Brothers and sisters, that means we are called to love and care for the nations because of Christ like a nursing mother with compassion and care and tenderness and love, and they will grow up and be nourished and strengthened from us. That is the hope of God moving and working. That is the hope of missions. But secondly, in verse 13 to 14, God is pictured as a caring mother. Now, God is not biological. He is spirit. We cannot press the imagery too far, but the imagery still is purposeful. The point is to show that God is loving and compassionate. The maternal imagery of God is not unique to Scripture. There are many other places that describe God as a compassionate and caring mother. Like a mother, a loving mother, the Lord cares deeply for our children. And the foundation of God's deep maternal loving care is His covenant promise. Earlier in Isaiah, we read this. In Isaiah 49, verses 15 to 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. That is how much the Lord loves his people. The people of God are forever engraved on the palm of his hands. The Lord, compared to a nursing mother, will never leave his children because they are his precious children. He will never forget us. He will never forsake us. His rod and his staff will comfort us now and will comfort us tomorrow and will comfort us throughout all eternity. And one day our hearts will rejoice. One day our bodies will flourish. One day the hand of the Lord will be known mightily to all the people. And one day the judgment of God will be carried out. But that day will be a day of comfort and joy and peace for God's people. 
brothers and sisters, God's restoration brings us comfort, restful, strengthening, everlasting comfort. This joy, this peace, this comfort all flow out of the cross work of Christ. Because of the eternal plan of God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit to redeem humanity, we enter into God's eternal comfort, the restoration of all things. And it's in this restoration of all things where we experience true joy, lasting peace, and eternal comfort. God's word is sure. One day, God declares, I will make all things new. Restoration will be final and complete. No more sins and sorrows will grow. The blessed salvation of Christ will extend as far as the curse was once found. But that day is not yet. Now, for now, we wait. We rejoice in what Christ has done for us. But we long for that day when his work is complete. We rest in the peace of Christ, but we long for that peace to be extended to all of our broken world. We find comfort in Christ now, but we desire that day when all of creation will be comforted. Our hearts cry out, O come, thou long-expected Jesus. Brothers and sisters, church of God, do your hearts cry out for Jesus to come again. Doesn't the brokenness of this world stir up in you such a deep longing that longs for Christ to come? Our broken relationships, our divisions, our strife, our misery, our sadness, our death, our weariness. What should our cry be? Come, Lord Jesus, come. There is no salvation to be found in any one or any system in this world. There is salvation found in Christ and Christ alone. There is no earthly Savior. Salvation is found in Him. Our hope must rest in Christ alone. So cry out for Him to return. Long for His coming. Then on that day that we long for, our eternal comfort will be established forever and ever as God recreates and makes all things new. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star, the spirit and the bride. And let me say, that is us, church. We are the bride. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come. Lord Jesus, come. Father, we believe you are coming again. Help our unbelief. We are thirsty. Help us to thirst more. We are desperate. 
help us to be even more desperate. We long for you to come. Create within us a deeper longing. Spirit, help us in the waiting. Help us to live faithfully in the in-between. May we rest in your eternal comfort today, knowing with absolute surety and certainty that you keep your promises. You, God, are our covenant faithful God. So grant us, we pray, joy and peace and comfort now. And it's in the name of your beautiful, blessed, mighty, and powerful Jesus. In your Christ, we pray. Amen.